Hello, everyone. Welcome to Affirmative Interaction. I keep doing this whenever I start the show. It's really strange. Hello, everyone. Uh, we are so glad that you decided to join us again for another episode. Uh, we are here with uh, Nixon, Garrison, uh, Esther, Adrian, and Logan. And of course, we have a very special guest, the esteemed writer, content manager for Message Magazine, anti-racist activist, Claudia Allen. We're happy to have you. Welcome, Claudia. Hello. So happy to be here. So we are, again, we're back for another episode. We're glad you guys are able to make it. Um, We're just going to do a a quick check-in with everyone. Mike. Oh, get lit. Mike, I... (laughs) Love the T-shirt. I did see on Instagram you got a T-shirt from uh, Jamie Calazar. I'm super interested for you to let us in on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So shout out to the homie, Dr. Jamie Calazar. Uh, He has a movement called Raise Your Voice. Uh, He started Raise Your Voice Academics. And so he has a bunch of dope merch. I copped this Seventh-day Activist shirt. Uh, He sent it out. He has a lot of other dope shirts. This one, he has some mugs, things of that nature he's working on. Uh, some some content for, in particular, youth to be able to raise their voice on issues of equity, anti-racism, things of that nature. Uh, so big shout out to the homie uh, and, and check out his movement. It's really dope. You're on mute. You're but, mute, Jordan. All good. Yeah. Just, just like a Zoom. Forgot boomer. I was a boomer. Yeah, just, I know. <laughs> I do. I do go to bed at ten thirty. Uh, Garrison, we are excited that you've returned. That you're back. You and Simone, and you also had a thirtieth birthday. That's a big number. How was it? You you old, bro. It's over. It's downhill from here. Way downhill. It does not get better in the thirties. It's sure so sad. No, bro. Down at all. Mad depressing. So one of one of my big homies hit me like, told me like, yeah, man, you know, thirty is when Jesus started his ministry. So your most significant mm-hmm. work is ahead of you. I was yes. like, I appreciate that. That's amazing. That's really good. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Nick, like, you have a couple years left to live. Like, like <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> but Simone's on her way. Simone, her chair is here. She's on her way. She's finishing some, something else up. So. Cool. Very good. Very good. Adrian, Esther, I understand you guys are getting ready for a move, big move. Uh, tell us about that and how and how your week has been. Uh, yeah, so we're moving to Maryland <laughs> um, in, a, in a few days. <laughs> super, super exciting. Um, I don't know. In, Indy's been good, but this still in some ways feels like a preview of the marriage because this mm-hmm. isn't our home. So um, I'm, I'm excited to, I guess, like officially, officially start, um, you know, so we'll be there Friday. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're excited, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Super glad. Um, if you guys need any help um, packing or uh, actually unloading what you've packed, um, I'm going to be busy. Logan, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Logan, I love the Against the Wall t-shirt. Um, oh, 
So big shout out to Against the Wall. That is Mike's, uh, I would say, nonprofit is is anti-racism initiative. Um, so Logan is uh, wearing that T-shirt. Logan, besides that, though, how's your week? Yeah, week is good. Um, this COVID spike is kind of scary living in the Bay Area. It seems like yeah. we had we had flattened the curve pretty well, but I think um, just protests mixed with people doing normal things again, restaurants kind of reopening. I'm kind of getting a little fearful of, of the coronavirus, but you know, people keep asking me, what are you doing for the fourth? And I'm like, hopefully none of us are doing anything, but um, you know, whatever, I guess. I guess That's I'm the realest thing ever. Just trying to avoid death. I was like, don't even care about that holiday because it's just a bunch of American flags, you know, whatever. So we did June 19th like a week ago or whatever, so. That's great. To be honest, I mean, I have to agree. I feel like Juneteenth is just going to replace. Um, it's it's going to be more prominent in my life uh, besides Fourth of July. Fourth of July sucks in my book. But Claudia, Hello. again, welcome once again. How was your week? We're happy to have you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited. This is um, this is the third podcast for me in two days. So this is great. I did two yesterday. <laughs> I'm doing one tonight. So it's great. Um, honestly, this just doesn't feel like work because all you guys are friends. So I feel like we're just kicking it right now. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is Andrew's BSCF alumni weekend right here. Right here. Right. It's, about all, it's about all y'all going to get. So you better. <laughs> We don't want y'all on campus, so no thanks. This is this is this is our makeshift gazebo. All right, you know, we're chilling. We can make that happen for sure. Classic gazebo. Classic, classic. Oh man. Okay, so. Um, just wanted to take a quick look on who's joining us right now. Quick shout out to Jeanne Henry. Jeanne is clearly excited that Claudia is here, um, and we are too. Uh, Sean Tay Sledge says, happy birthday, Garrison. Once again, happy 30th to Garrison. Uh, I, I, Garrison, I don't know if you got the, um, uh, the, the birthday video I sent you, but or maybe not. I, I did, actually. I did. You didn't, but I did say uh, 30 is a new 15, and then now that I think of it, it makes no sense. And uh, Donnell says, live from NY. Uh, once again, the, the, the lawyer. Shout out to the dog. The loyal <laughs> viewer, and Brie Vallett says, we're missing Danielle. We are missing Danielle. Danielle recently moved to uh, Maryland, so we're I guess we're all just assembling, like the Avengers right now. Yeah, uh, but you are. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so before she starts her job, she's taking vacation this week. So we're missing her, but she will be back next week. And hello, Siobhan. Thank you for joining us. So we're just going to get right into it. And we're just going to make sure, uh, guys, when we are sharing, let's just keep our responses concise because we really want to make sure we get all perspectives in because we have a lot to cover this week. So Jesse Christ is a good guy I've, from what I've heard. I heard he's a good person. 
Um, you have to get to the poor, which I appreciate. But there have been calls to you know remove Jesse Christ, I guess, from um, from the Christian evangelical canon. Yeah. Uh, there has been a tweet sent out by Sean King. Um, uh-huh. where he says, and I'll just read it real quick. He says, I think the statues of white Europeans, of the white European they claim is Jesus should come down. They are a form of white supremacy. Always have been. In the Bible, when the family of Jesus wanted to hide and blend in, guess where they went? Egypt, not Denmark. Tear them down. So just to give further context, you know, all that has been happening in this country has really turned uh, America, Black Lives Matter, anyone that is an ally to really rethink the symbols and the policies and the things that really perpetuate white supremacy in this country. So Claudia, I do think that you know a lot about this topic because you did write a magnificent article and we'll make sure we put it in the comments too on white Jesus and the history behind it and why he needs to be uh, taken down. So please just kind of give us a little bit of what you wrote about so we can set the table. Yeah, so um, man, so the article is entitled um, Why White Jesus Has to Go. And uh, basically I kind of start uh, by sharing that Jesus kind of became uh, seen mostly in European iconography between the thir- within the 13th and 14th century. And then over time, um, you know, that's only morphed, right? But I think one thing that, you know, should be said is during that time period, painters, sculptors, people that were doing art were um, creating based off their own images, the images of their friends and family and things of this nature. And then eventually what ended up happening is art then began to um, replicate itself, right? So it's like, if if we've got this image out, then a painter is gonna look at that last painting and then paint from their own imagination so forth and so on, right? It's really not until um, the 19th century, the late 19th century that we start getting specifically kind of like white Euro-American images of Jesus, um, but, from history, Warner Salmon's uh, 1941 image called Head of Christ is probably the considered the most famous uh, picture of Jesus. Um, you know, this is like, you know, portrait, you know, blonde hair, blue eye. Like this is this is like sexy Jesus. This is like Southern sexy Jesus, 1941. Um, like some scholars even consider um, that Jesus to actually be a little effeminate. And so they're kind of like, why haven't we ever talked about the fact that Jesus seems super feminine in this painting? But um, so this painting ended up becoming so widely circulated that it was in every single home, every single school, every single church. Um, Some preachers actually were asking people to carry that picture of Jesus in their wallet. Um, and so, yeah, there, there was just this, this idea that this particular image, Warner Salmon's image is the literal image of Christ. And that image of blonde haired, blue eyed Jesus immediately got attached to white supremacy, uh, both psychological violence, physical violence, spiritual violence, um, and while 
white Jesus, let's say in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th century, wasn't necessarily, um, the violence attached to him was not necessarily racial. Um, I think that it's fair to say that historically, iconography has most certainly played a role in uh, violence against people. Um, and so um, I think that it's just in the 20th century that we see this particular iconography start to have um, the most problem. And quite frankly, I don't think, or to be fair, I don't think that Warner Salmon intended that this be white supremacy Jesus. Um, I don't think that he painted this thinking like, man, I really hope the KKK picks this up um, and starts letting let people know Jesus is not for them. You know, I, I really don't think that that was in his heart. I think that he he painted an image. And I think that people who believe in eugenics, people who believe in the purity of whiteness, people who believe in the power of whiteness took this image um, and felt like it was the greatest expression of those ideas. And that's kind of what ended up with the, um, the Warner Salmon image. I end the article basically suggesting that maybe we should consider defacing Christ um, and instead not necessarily be so caught up in maintaining his image, whether that be for educational purposes, spiritual purposes, but let's look to this event at the 16th Street Baptist Church where this church was bombed and so much of the church was left in ruin, um, except for this <clears throat> stained glass window of Jesus where the face is the only thing that's black that's kind of burst out. The, the remainder of the window is kind of still there. There are some other aspects of it that have been, um, you know, blown out, but everything else, that window is like still standing <laughs> other than Jesus's face. And, you know, what does that say to us metaphorically that potentially um, God himself is like in the midst of all of this, maybe the one thing I would love for you guys to do is to stop projecting this idea that this is what I looked like, that this is my face, that this is who I am. Um, let's kind of remove these graven images um, and let's get back to the heart of who I am and maybe even the commandment of, of, of not creating things in my image, potentially, um, you know? And I, I think one thing I, I will say that I have, I think I forgot to say is one person commented on the article and I thought it was a really great comment. And she said um, that she feels like white Jesus is also um, in, a t in an anti-Semitic attack because it, completely erases uh, Jesus's Jewish heritage. And, you know, that's not something that we talk about enough either. Um, you know, to suggest that this man was was a white Euro-American um, is not only a psychological and spiritual violence to black people, but it is an active erasure of his very natural and very real Jewish historical heritage. Um, and that is a kind of violence against the Jews in, in present day. Thank you for that, that super quick overview. I have to say what really kind of jumped out to me is this idea of that, any, that I didn't consider until I read your article that, you know, <clears throat> Salman, the, the guy that painted the picture, you know, didn't have malicious intent 
just like so many things I think in America, something good is co-opted and used to oppress black and brown people or people that are disenfranchised. I think that's just super fascinating that, you know, even this painting itself, again, is inherently, it's not bad. It's just the way that it's used is deeply problematic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I think that that's what partially what white privilege is, right? Is that you can do things unintentionally and it still cause harm. And you um, ultimately do not have to bear any kind of responsibility for the harm that it caused um, simply because your whiteness does not have to take into consideration the feelings, thoughts of others. It's, well, this was my intent, so that's it. Um, mm. And it's also why I believe so many are borderline personally offended whenever this conversation around the removal of white Jesus comes up because it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This has nothing to do with race and racism. Jesus is not um, some tool of white supremacy. This is just an image that I, you know, uh, come to God with. This is just an image that I, you know, see in worship and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's very, there's this like quick need to kind of defend the image and um, an unwillingness to accept uh, what the iconography has kind of done historically. So what do you think on that conversation of intent? Because, you know, I hear that and I kind of think, why would they not know what they were painting, you know, in this idea of Jesus? I mean, they painted this man to be blonde. Did you find any in your digging to, to kind of see? Because like, I don't really want to justify this act as, you know, not malicious because, you know, it, I think there is that part of, you know, the Jesus conversation and to, to keep everyone up to speed, we call white Jesus, Jesse Christ, because, you know, that's not Jesus. Um, it's something I've been saying just with my friends for a little while now. And so um, if anyone's confused who Jesse Christ is, it's the, the non-image of, of white Jesus. But, you know, to speak to this artist's rendering, can we really just say, ah, oh, there was no malicious intent, you know, the, this thing, what did you, what did you discover as you dug into that? Because I would say, you know, um, kind of odd to paint a Jesus from the Middle East, you know, born in Bethlehem, coming, you know, from Mesopotamia, like roots to, to, to make him at all look like this. That just seems like odd or maybe uneducated. Do we know why that was commissioned to be that way? For sure. So I think, I think there are two books that I think everybody should read if you want to kind of better understand this topic. The first is called The Color of Christ by uh, Dr. Edward Bloom, The Son of God and the Saga of Race in America. And then the second is a book called The Forge of Vision, A Visual History of Modern Christianity uh, by Dr. David Morgan. And uh, Dr. David Morgan's book is more of like an art history textbook. And The Color of Christ is really a sociological, critical, historical overview kind of. Um, but both of these books are essential. And, and Dr. Bloom argues that, you know, images of Christ have transformed over time. And I think that at the heart of that is the idea that um, people are constantly trying to conceptualize who God is. Hi, friend. They're trying to figure out what is he like? What does he look like? How does he 
move? How does he operate? And so I'm trying to depict him. I'm trying to be able to grasp God. I think that's what, I think every single move of religion and theology is humanity's attempt at trying to grasp God. And oftentimes in that attempt, whether that be through language, whether that be through art, we always put God in a box. So I think that to your intent, Logan, about question uh, about intent, I think that it comes down to the intent is that I, in my humanity, desire to know, understand, and see God through my lens. And that's why for centuries, right, we've seen artistic renderings of Christ as a Korean, as a Black African-American, as a white Euro-American, um, renderings of Christ have taken several ethnic and, and racial forms. I think the difference between those cultural renderings and white Euro-American Jesus is white Euro-American people are in positions of power that allow them to establish this Jesus as a kind of standard, as a, as a normalization, as a this is what it is versus other people groups do not have the social capital or ability to be able to do that. So if I make a painting of black Jesus, everyone's gonna look at that and be like, oh wow, that's really cute, that's cool. If, if, I, if I put up a picture of Korean Jesus, it's gonna be like, that's super innovative, never thought to do that. But no one is ever going to think, wow, Jesus potentially really looked like that. It is only with, with uh, the kind of social, um, cultural power that whiteness and racism possess that gives them the ability to be able to create a white Jesus and effectively market and distribute it to the point where people actually believe that this is a literal Christ. And I think that that's the kind of distinguishing factor that I think white people don't want to acknowledge. It's, it's your intent what you desire to have happen with the image is really is is a non-factor. The only thing that matters is that your race is in a position of power and is constantly seeking to assert yourself as the standard and assert yourself as the as that which is normal, as that which is pure, as that which is holy. And so the moment that you then do that to Jesus, and then on top of that, you put it you put mass production around it, then it goes to a completely different level. And no longer is this just kind of Warner Salmon's depiction. Now this is white America's depiction. Now this is a system. Now this is an entity that is further perpetuating white supremacist ideas. And what are white supremacist ideas? White supremacist ideas are the notion that white Euro-American expressions, whether that be through skin or any other means is standard, is normal, is what we all should be uh, wishing and praying and hoping that we can be like. And that's why white Jesus becomes so dangerous. Hmm. Yeah, I I have a, a, a few concerns that I've seen from the response from for many of my white brethren, uh, particularly because they fail to realize the power dynamic that plays in um, the, this image that they have of what Christ looks like. And oftentimes I have seen a response where there's one of, all right, I understand the, the, the damage that this image has done 
to so many people of color. Um, and in response, you will get, so let's just remove uh, any color or ethnicity from Christ altogether. Um, and I think that's part of the harm that I see in, from, from many white Americans' responses is that, you know, you can bring up examples of uh, a, an Asian-inspired picture of Jesus Christ or an African-inspired of Jesus Christ and say, these are all different races that may or may not be accurate to what Christ actually looks like. But there is a failure to to recognize that none of those other depictions have caused the same type of harm to different people across the country. And so there is a level of a false equivalence here when I see people to say, uh, let's just remove them all. And in some ways, it, it almost reminds me of any conversation regarding race where there is uh, a tendency to remove any exclusive sacrifice that white Americans have to make um, in some mm. ways I don't want to be the one to make this own to make this soul sacrifice by myself uh, because that would in some ways uh, mean that I am a part of this problem and it's like the only way for me to feel comfortable in any form of change is that if there are other races making the same sacrifice that I have to make but I don't always know if that is accurate to the world like the world that we're living in because these other races have never had the power that you all have had mm -hmm. i think that that's i think that that's very astute i definitely agree that white people whenever they get comfortable have a tendency to say well just get rid of it all then i mean let's just just you know if it has to you know what i mean so it's, it's very they make kind of these extremist declarations because they know that if they say something like that the rebuttal is going to be like, that's not what I'm saying. So then they can come back and say, well, then why are you asking me to get rid of white Jesus? Right. right? So it's mm -hmm. it, it, they're trying to set up a counter argument to counter you so that you remove your argument altogether. Um, that said, I'm not sure that. So this is a comp. I feel like it's a very complicated conversation, right? I mean, mm -hmm. over the last few days that I've seen different people commenting and, and writing in reference to the article. Um, on the one hand, I've seen a lot of people say, hey, we should have never had images of Christ because these are graven images and um, just make him an image of light or, um, you know, something non-raced, non-human, something of this nature, right? Everyone wants to kind of eliminate the humanity of Jesus altogether. At the same time, or on the other hand, I also kind of hear what you were saying, Adrian, from the standpoint of let's just make more, let's have more diverse images of Jesus. But even if you have more diverse images of Jesus, is that really going to fix the problem? Because these people groups that are now being represented in these new renderings of Christ are not in, in any social position mm -hmm. to have these images have any kind of altering effect. So I think that it's almost kind of a, a, a multi-layered work, right? I think that one, theologians and religious scholars have to continue to do a work around the historical humanity of Christ. I think if we can all get to this place where we all fundamentally know and understand 
who Jesus is or who Jesus was and, and how he moved historically Jewish, Palestinian Jewish man from Nazareth who hid out in, in Egypt kind of a thing, then I think when we see images of white Jesus, it won't have the same effect, right? So you have to remember when Warner Salmon's painting was done in 1941, there was no uh, the theological or religious scholarship that was being published on the historical nature of Christ. So it was very easy to say, this is the depiction of Jesus and culture kind of take over. Whereas now we have much more scholarship. Time Magazine even has done, you know, entire um, issues that, you know, seek to kind of portray this is what Jesus more than likely would have looked like. So globally, I think that there's a different understanding around what Jesus more than likely looked like. So that if I see a white image of Christ, it's not going to have the same destructive impact in 2020 that it had in 1940. Um, that said, that doesn't necessarily mean that white images of Christ are not problematic. I think it's just that, you know, when you take something into consideration um, in conjunction with history, theological and religious scholarship, I think that what is articulated and what is gathered, um, it's just a bit, a bit different. Like art, the easiest way I can say this without being so complicated is all art exists and functions within context, right? So whether it's literature or whether it's a visual rendering, the painting or the book always is going to sit within the historical context in which it was published or painted. And so that means that the meaning, the significance and the impact is wholesale tied into when it was released. And so I think that that's the same thing for these images of Jesus. I think we're looking at a historical uh, contextual moment um, while also trying to consider like, what does that mean for our contemporary moment? Yeah. If that makes sense. I feel like that was super complicated. No, it does. It does. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And I'll, maybe I'll jump in and just add a couple quick observations. Um, one of the reasons why I think, you know, Jesse Christ got to go. And again, thank you, Claudia, for your article. It's powerful. Um, and for all those who've written and, and have done work on, on this area. And um, it seems the, the large amount of writing and effort that has to go into dismantling whiteness all the time is, is pretty interesting. Um, but I think the, the reason that resonates with me the most around why I think it, you know, these depictions need to go is because the, the ongoing effects of them, e even disconnected from any um, overt uh, desire to oppress or to diminish or subjugate or exclude in particular black persons, it's continuing to have that effect in really subtle ways. And I'll give you two quick examples. Um, and, I and I've shared this with some of you all before, but I don't think I've shared it on the pod. Um, I brought my daughter to a uh, Sabbath school class. Um, it was this when she was four. Um, and she was having a good time. She was getting involved and everything was fine. Um, you know, she was making friends and all that. And um, I didn't pick up on anything that was like iffy because, you know, my antennas were up and I was like, I just want to make sure that, you know, these folk ain't trying to, 
you know, colonize my daughter and nothing like popped up like that, you know, but we were, so we were walking from the class to uh, church and um, <clears throat> we bumped into this white gentleman who, who has a beard that she'd maybe seen one time before and who I interact with like every once in a while, but not necessarily close at all. Um, and she looked up at me and she was like, daddy and pointed at him. That's Jesus. And nobody had mm -hmm. said that to her. A Sabbath school teacher hadn't said that to her. Y'all know I hadn't said that to her. Like, <laughs> right. Oh, you know the vibes in our household. Um, yeah. <laughs> but she, I mean, you know, Noah's like the smartest, you know, five-year-old now in the universe. And so she mm -hmm. kind of put two and two together. I'm seeing these images. I'm seeing these felts. I'm seeing these pictures. They're talking about this guy, Jesus, who, um, you know, is God. And, oh, why do with the beer? That's Jesus, right? And so we had to do some serious, you know, in-depth unlearning of that mm. already at age four. And again, that wasn't like necessarily an intentional act by anybody involved with that scenario, but just the existence of those images has a certain effect over time. It, it's just inevitable. The, the second quick one I'll share is um, last summer and, um, this is kind of where like the Jesse Christ thing, we really adopted this framing from Logan. Um, I, I had the opportunity to, to go to Kenya. And um, while I was there, I was told to visit uh, this place here. It's the African Adventist Heritage Museum. And everybody was like talking it up. Um, everyone was telling me that, uh, oh, you know, you, you have to go there. Uh, there's so much amazing information about you know, African Adventist heritage and you'll love it. And so I was super excited. So, you know, I pulled up and I went and um, as I went there, I was greeted with this photograph. And I'm going to close up in a second, but you can kind of see there's this depiction of, you know, a lot of different things, but um, of note, I mean, there, there he is in all his glory, Jesse. And I'm in Nairobi, Kenya, at the Adventist University of Africa, and um, <laughs> museum, and their heritage museum. And this is the portrayal of Jesus. At least, you know, see, we, we got a, at least we got like a black angel here, so we at least bumped up to that status. We usually don't even get that necessarily. Say but that. I, you know, I was in the motherland, and you know, I assumed that I would see something different. And it was evident that this had made its way onto those shores, obviously from these shores. And um, so so African persons who are studying there walk by that every day. And that's the picture yeah. of Jesus that is shown. And so, um, yeah, for, for that and several other reasons, it just has to go. Uh, the fact that we can't even have a, a Black depiction of Jesus in the Adventist University of Africa in this church uh, really probably says all that needs to be said, at least from my perspective on, on the fact that we need to shift for sure. Yeah. 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 If I can just jump in there as well, I think the thing that's kind of striking to me as a pastor of a church, like a couple rooms over in our sanctuary, we have a white Jesus. And I tweeted this because it is a weekly like comment, like during normal times when we were meeting, people would every single week say like, yeah, the service was good, but man, that Jesse up there was like real, you know what I'm saying? Like Jesus, like that white Jesus was really distracting, like constantly. 
And and so, I mean, you know, kind of almost in a way, kind of jumping off of what you're saying, Nick's like it has a reverberating effect. I mean, Claudia, I really appreciate the historical framing that even at the time, like almost kind of like like handing an olive branch out there that even at the time when white Jesus was being established as normative, there wasn't a ton of scholarship that was focused on the historicity and the true ethnicity and race perhaps of Jesus at the time. And, and, I, and I appreciate that olive branch, but the thing, and this is where the, the second comment that I'll say, the thing that really kind of troubles me is the connection to the non-blackness of Jesus. And I've seen that over the last week or so of this conversation being in the mainstream is that there are so many people who are willing, who are, first of all, there are a lot of people who are unwilling to unwhite Jesus, right? But there are, it seems to be even more people who are unwilling to even admit that Jesus could have been black, that Jesus, in many ways was likely, the likelihood of being from that particular area at that time meant that Jesus would have had darker skin. I saw a comment earlier about what about the books of Daniel and Revelation? And we know in the book of Revelation chapter one, it says that he had this bronze skin. Now I literally Google searched bronze. I didn't put anything other than just bronze. And it's blacker than me. Like, it's black. You know what I'm saying? So, like, the likelihood is that Jesus was black. He was, like, like we right. have to be okay with Jesus being black. And I've seen an unwillingness. Like, okay, he's not white, but he's Middle Eastern. Well, Middle Eastern, uh, what does that mean? Like, like, like what does that mean? And it, and it really is, for me, rooted in a great deal of anti-blackness that exists in this world which is the power of white Jesus. The power of white Jesus is not to have an image that looks like you and it's representation and it makes it easy for me to connect. It is specifically designed in my, in the perhaps globalization of it to diminish um, God as a black being and a, and a being that's directly connected with blackness. Yeah, I think, you know, even thinking about, I was just kind of, you know, even talking about this earlier, it's like, the historical accuracy, you know, inaccuracy of it all is so alarming because, yeah, we may not have had maybe the research that that went into it to say, OK, uh, it's determinative that he was black. But we had maps of like, you know, in, in our Bibles, you know what I'm saying? I got a Bible that flipped open to a couple maps that were certainly not in Ireland. And I am just alarmed. That we have people who are so attached to the mm -hmm. idea of there being a white Jesus because that's who we've made him to be. Honestly, the the offense and the inaccuracy is flagrant. It's actually mm -hmm. appalling because it is so clear that he's from a part of the world that is not white. And the fact that it ever was that, the fact that the depictions of him were ever white is already bad enough. But then when you try to have some common sense and say, okay, well, like, let's look at where a dude is from. And like, let's look at what, you know, who do we have coming out of those areas? People actually get upset. And that is amazing to me because, you know, it is just so obvious. You know, if, if somebody were coming from, 
the Philippines and we said, oh, it's a white person, you know, we would be like, um, I mean, are they a missionary? Are they like, what's going on? Because that's not, that's not accurate. But because he's from the Middle Eastern area, because we're talking about Africa, you know, we have such an issue with reconciling that fact with just the previous images that we've had. And, and it, it's just, I mean, it's just such a, a silly thing. It really is. <laughs> that's, that's so good, Hayes family. You, you, they went back to back like that and just dropped knowledge. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's so good because what's also coming to my mind as you're talking, Simone, is I'm also realize, or remembering that white Europeans have almost always been on some kind of conquering tip right? Like they've always been on some kind of quest for colonialism, quest for the acquisition of lands, quest for the elevation of self. And they have always been trying to seek to alter science, ideology, philosophy, and religion to help them in that venture. And so it's like, if I'm trying to conquer the world, then I need the world to believe that their God looks like me. Yes. And so regardless of what the map says, regardless of, of what the text says, uh, I need it to look like me. So I'm going to paint this like me and I'm going to make you believe. I'm going to actually demonize your culture. I'm going to strip you of your language. I'm going to put you in unfamiliar territory so that you are now almost socially forced to receive the lie and borderline psychologically and physically beaten into receiving the lie. And that is, I feel, I feel like why they were able to do that. Because it's like, if I'm trying to, to, which they effectively did, right? Like they actively colonized the world mm -hmm. outside of Antarctica, right? So they, they effectively went place to place to place. And in order to do that, whiteness must be a superior entity. It must be a superior ex expression of humanity. And how can I better prove this idea than to make sure that Christ himself is an expression of that whiteness? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Super good. Sorry. <clears throat> no, go ahead. I wasn't. I was going to say, I wow. think oh. thinking about all the historical context and all the all of the things that go into why, like what would fuel doing this throughout history. My, my question to people right now, as I see them pushing back against this so much and see like that obvious discomfort with this conversation is I think for a lot of people making Jesus black, making Jesus a person of color is forcing them to divorce ideas that they have about blackness and that mm. they have about people of color like divorce those ideas from each other because you can't have a black Jesus, the symbol of goodness, the symbol of divinity, the symbol of the symbol of all of this, while also harboring all of these low key ideas about blackness being criminal, about the Middle East being a place of terrorists and violence and murder. You know, like you can't hold those two things in the same That's in the good. same place. So there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that I think people oh, just yeah. they're not ready for it. That's so, I want to do a dance. It's so good. 
<laughs> oh man, no, seriously, that's so good. I don't even have anything to add. I just think that I, I need people to let that really like resonate. I think that that's the heart of the frustration is that I'm still harboring these ideas about what I think black means, about what mm. I think Middle East is, about what I think is happening over there. Yeah. And so because I am unwilling to change the way that I think about the Orient, quote unquote, and because I am unwilling to change the way that I think about blackness, I am unwilling to attach yeah. Christ to yeah. it, even if it is historically accurate. Even yeah. if Jesus was a, a, a toddler running around the pyramids, he didn't blend in. Like, I don't care what you tell me, mm -hmm. he was just over there and they just didn't have access to him. But it wasn't like he was blending in. I think that there's there's something to what Esther has just said that I feel like is just so key to why they do not want to to let this thing go right now because they don't want to let go of their inherent prejudice. That's really yeah. that's what it is. I don't want to let go of the prejudice ideas that I have, yeah. and so that's that's why Jesus Jesse. That's why Jesse has. To <laughs> <laughs> so no, that's I very. I, I'm sorry, Logan. I want to say super quick because I just I love this idea that um, Esther just Esther just posited, and, and, and I think the irony of it is that Jesus, you know, he arrived on Earth to communicate this idea that those that we consider other should yeah. be in the forefront, should be taking president, and then now we've you know you know whiteness has done so much work to remove Jesus from otherness. Right. Mm -hmm. But we, mm -hmm. but if you were other than Jesus says, you belong with me. If you are not oh, included, God. if you're excluded, you belong with me. So why are you trying to pull me away from the essence of why I, one of the reasons why I came to this earth in the first place? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's so true. I mean, the when we look at America as a whole, like white supremacy is our original sin. Like we've been from the beginning bringing you know, black people here as slaves, just with the whole goal of not only dehumanizing in them and, and forcing them to work for us, but erasing their history. That was the original first thing that happened whenever we brought people here. It was the erasure of history. We said, your whatever's happened behind you does not matter. And whatever happens in front of you is ours to control. And so if white supremacy is our original sin, then white Jesus cannot save white people from this sin like white mm -hmm. jesus being a tool of white supremacy he cannot save and is what's more important about this conversation is that he will not save black people he would not want to save black people. a, a savior okay. rooted in white supremacy would not want black people in its buildings like a, a white mm -hmm. when, when i hear garrison talking about a white jesus looking out over a black audience he does not smile he is not happy mm -hmm. He does not appreciate this because he was brought here to indoctrinate white people that the, the even the people looking at him are not worthy of the second coming, are not worthy of the salvation. The images that people of white supremacy have put of heaven, they are white people. They are white angels. You look at the, the bedtime stories, they are white Moseses and Abrahams and Josephs and Daniels. And you know, even the lions and the lions didn't have a, have a blonde shade. I mean, like everything about these books 
charred, catering to whiteness. And so I have to ask a practical question that a few people have reached out to me on. You know, we have this 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 museum, Nixon, that you spoke to. Bjerson, you have an image in your church. You know, I we did a remodel at, at um, a church in Missouri, and I'm not going to mention it, but uh, I know that they brought an image and I sent it to the group chat, you know, Jesse Christ, and we hung it on the wall in the lobby. It's It's pretty similar to the one. What could people do that are asking what do I what do I replace this with? What do I change this to? Because the whole idea of getting rid of an image will only work. Like the only people that would do that are the people that are getting rid of white Jesus. The white people are still going to just be like, nah, we'll just keep this image because they didn't have anything to replace it with. So because the image of God is important. He's historical. Jesus existed. If you want to make God in Asian or, you know, God in every culture, God, that's fine. Jesus existed. Jesus came from a black heritage, Jesus needs to err on the, if anything, on the side of blackness. But what could people do that are saying like, what do I replace this with? What do I um, do in my church, in my home congregation? How do I go about maybe even talking to a board or a committee to say, hey, I wanna get rid of this because of the history and it's troubling to people as this conversation goes. Cause as this conversation continues, black people will become more aware and they will see that these churches aren't safe for them. If, if their congregations are not willing to address some of these problems. So I'd love your thoughts on that, all anyone. <laughs> I, I'll just, I'll jump in to start because I'm in that process now. So as I mentioned, wow. we, got, we got one, we got, we, got, we got Jesse in the other room. And I can say, can you guys hear me? I don't know if I'm, yes. yeah, okay, good. So I can say that people have prioritized removing it in their giving. And that's really important uh. because Obviously, our churches work on budgets and and we say this is what we're spending on for this year. You guys get the way a budget works and you know that our tithe don't our tithe dollars don't stay here. So you're operating, you know, budget, you're giving to the operating combined budget of your church, your local giving through offerings. Those things typically go to make sure that lights are on, musicians are paid, you know, whatever other things you do in your community are done. And so white Jesus isn't in, is it probably isn't in the budget for 2020. And so giving could be a really good way to help like change that image. We have a really big um, stained glass mural. So it's gonna be somewhat expensive and labor intensive to get it removed. But I'll say this, if it is just a painting, Take that joint down yourself. Anarchy. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But like, talk to this leadership. <laughs> I was looking, bro. <laughs> Let's go. Talk to them about what we're talking about now, and send them Claudia's article because it really is powerful. The way you break it down and, and talk about the, the clarity with clarity, the history of white Jesus. But seriously, mobilize the people to get it removed if it's something as easy as a painting. Yeah, um, one of the things that I would probably point to, I think something that Claudia and, and what Esther said is to also reconcile with uh, the damage that an image of white Jesus uh, does to the, the cultures that white supremacy has colonized. Uh, so I can look no further than, uh, you know, like my Caribbean roots and how, how uh, freely they tend to express themselves, whether it's through music or whether it's through dancing, clapping, singing, being loud. Um, and what tends to happen is 
there is a a suppression of that uniqueness that comes with that culture because of how they were taught uh, that how Christ should expect them to express themselves in a spiritual setting. And uh, you, you see that happen in other areas, even in our country. We don't have to go to all, all the other different countries, but I think that has also been part of the, the problem is that the idea of a white Jesus justifies the, the cultural expression of other uh, people's countries. And, you know, we, we look at something like um, uh, you, you can look no further than, I guess, you know, like our experiences as, as students at, at Andrews, there was so much pushback just for new life to have drums um, during Black History Weekend. This, this idea that it is irreverent to express themselves in a particular and unique way is rooted in something. And at the face of that is this idea of a white man who they call Christ. And that I think is also part of the conversation is to recognize that if we are going to dismantle the power that a picture of white Jesus has, we also need to recognize that that picture has used, has been used to justify um, an effort to to delegitimize other people's culture. You know, to everything you guys are saying, um, I think that it's also, I think it's twofold. So I think on the one hand, I, I definitely think that we need to begin to empower Black images, Black expressions, uh, Black religious art, things of this nature in many of our houses of worship. Um, but I also think that it's also time to kind of remove these white images because they are a part of a dangerous revisionist history, right? And I think that it goes to even the conversation about the monuments, right? Because George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all of these individuals, right? Like we, wow, that, I don't know what that is, but I'm tr actively trying to, to clap it to death because, did I get it? <laughs> it's this huge thing, yo. Know, and I was like, no, 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 the Lord's not in that. Um, yeah. I missed it, but um, I'll keep going with my point until I find it. Um, I think that white, I think that we also need to think through our revisionist history as well, because, right, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all of these white moments in history, white individuals, right? We read them as, oh, well, this is this brilliant thinker on liberty. This is this brilliant general from the you know revolutionary army. This was this brilliant individual. And I saw this thing on Twitter that just like blew my mind. And it was like, what if you just like removed that stuff and said, this individual was complicit and participatory in the kidnapping and um, uh, setting up of sexual and industrial slavery of children. Like, like, what if you just like put that in there? Like, are you still going to make a, a memorial of that person? Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the way that we need to see white Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think that we need to see white Jesus from the standpoint of this is a broken image that has done significant damage for centuries rather than trying to protect him and come up with excuses for him. We just need to identify the reality that 
I'm going to tell the truth about this moment in time. I'm going to tell the truth about the effects of this image and we're going to remove it rather than trying to constantly maintain the same narrative. And I think that's why this moment is calling for such radical, um, it's calling for such radical change because I think that our, our nation has gone through such a long history of not telling the truth that so many people are saying, you know what, since we are requesting the truth, I wanna see the truth in the art. I wanna see the truth in the literature. I wanna see the truth in the monuments. I wanna see the truth in everything. And if that makes you uncomfortable, if that makes you feel like you're not ready for that move yet, then that's on you because I'm not asking for anything that is untruthful. I'm not asking for a fictional history. If anything, I'm asking that we decenter and destabilize the fictional history that has been established for the past two, three centuries. I think, I think that's a really important point that I kind of want to hold on right there, Claudia. I mean, we've seen this conversation. We even had some conversations about the larger white Jesus conversation, but I think rooted in some of the pushback is this idea, and, I, and we may have even seen it within, you know, today in the comments, is this idea that like, are we asking too much? Like, are you pushing <laughs> too far? Are you going, you know, are you too asking us to do too much at once? And I think what you're saying there is so key. I'm not asking you to do anything untruthful. I'm not asking you to do anything immoral. I'm not even asking yeah. you to do anything too hard. I'm yeah. asking you to stand up for what's right, right now. And if someone claims to be an ally, they will receive that as the truth. Like, like I love this book by Michael Eric Dyson called What Truth um, Sounds Like. It is a powerful, powerful book because it helps us to understand that hearing truth is often the last thing that we want to hear. It's often inconvenient. And so the truth of the damage and the pain and the hurt and the inaccuracy and the inequity of a white Jesus, if that is offending you, then I would challenge you by saying that you likely have not been listening to truth long enough. You likely yeah. don't know what truth sounds like. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I just, I just want to say real quick, I mean, I literally just Googled a picture of black Jesus. It's $36. Um, your church, your church has, your church has $36. And, um, <laughs> I, I really like, you can't really read it here, but it says on here, forgive them, Father. And I think that's really dope because- um, But now they know I what think, they do. Well, yeah, <laughs> now that they know, but they still need forgiveness for for blindfully or willfully promulgating these false pictures. So I, I dropped a link in the comments. I'll even donate a couple if, if some of y'all need them. It's, you know, you can go to a, you know, a pharmacy and get the picture blown up bigger, all types of sizes, frames. <laughs> it's, not, it's not difficult. So, amen. Amen, you. Amen, amen. And look, if you have to take this same picture that Mike shared and just look at it for five minutes before bed to work to erase <laughs> Jesse out of your mind, please do that. Please do that. So, I love... <laughs> I mean, I feel like Headspace should pick this up or the Calm app. Just have like a, <laughs> a black Jesus. I can just see Jordan at 1025, just ready for bed. It's <laughs> 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 like staring. Oh, like, 
But, you know, in, in speaking of, of white Jesus, there are other images that have been also called into question and I would say viscerally taken down. And those are monuments, monuments of people that contributed to chattel slavery here in America, monuments of people that have had deeply problematic histories in this country. And that has led to a number of things. And, you know, some of those things have been white people co-opting, um, you know, the monument discussion to, I, I would say, paint themselves in a light that they feel as if they're being attacked, that their history is being attacked. And also Trump responding to these same occurrences with threatening executive orders and retweeting uh, white power videos, which just, it sounds like a comedy storyline to me for some reason, it's just, it's ridiculous. So with all that being said, Garrison, Simone, you have returned. And I understand you guys have knowledge on this. Please kind of help us make sense of what's going on. I think, you know, I think that what Claudia said about white Jesus being a tool of revisionist history, I think that that almost seamlessly kind of connects to this conversation about the Confederate monuments. Um, I got into a Twitter exchange with someone recently where I was able to kind of like outline some of that history, which is that, you know, white people in the South after losing, getting a romping by the Union Army down, the Confederate Army uh, down in the South, um, where they, there was an occupation of the Union Army for, for several years during what we identify as Reconstruction, towards the end of Reconstruction, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, the president, um, uh, agreed to what would be known as the Compromise of 1877, I want to say. I, I, I might be getting that number wrong off the top of my head. And, and, and the, the Compromise basically stated that the Union Army would leave the South and would not interfere with the way that white people were engaging um, Black people down in the South. It sounds as though Jordan is having some... <laughs> Having some, some connection. Yeah. <laughs> connection issue. Yeah, it must be the internet, 5G. Yeah. It's 5G, it's 5G. <laughs> but the basic history is that, you know, Confederate monuments, after the Union Army, the North leaves the South, and white people in the South have control over their territory again. They begin to recast themselves as victors, as individuals, you know, you know who, who, who deserve monuments even though they lost the war and and we see now people are holding on to these monuments erected for no other purpose than white supremacy they're holding on to them to this very day and we're seeing all kinds of pushback from the removal i mean you guys will remember that charlottesville happened over the removal of a confederate monument. So when you're talking about two years to three years later, when the president is writing legislation to protect these monuments, which were once being protected by very good people who killed Heather Heyer, it's not surprising to see the way that these things have really touched uh, a chord in America, but particularly in white America. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great start, G. I, I, I just want to jump in here and say to our viewers that um, 
a lot of y'all's, you know, favorite preachers and evangelists and theologians are on social media acting crazy, crazy, acting crazy. A fool, acting a fool. Wiling on the internet. Stupid. On Al Gore's internet <laughs> looking stupid right now. Stupid. So, <laughs> like, they're just looking really dumb. And the you lay know, people are stressed. Are That's so the least that we could say. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is the thing. I want to say to that point, this really yeah. isn't personal. I know someone's going to take yeah. it personally, nah. but it's several of y'all. It's several of y'all out there saying ridiculous things and making comparisons that ought not be made. And, you know, there's one that I'm connected to in, in this conversation particularly, but... And, and I know that that person tunes in. So I'll just say this. It's not just it's not just that person. It's other people as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, I don't know. It's just weird, man. Like I, it's, it's weird, like the hills that, um, you know, sometimes that, you know, you know, Logan's cousins, like the hills they decide to die on. It's just really odd. Like I don't understand. Yeah. How, yeah. I, don't, I don't understand how Confederate monuments is a hill that you want to die on, bro. Like I, I don't, I don't get it at all. Like I, and and then in the same breath, calling yourself an anti-racist, it's just like, oh. like symbols expressly risen to um, calcify racism in our society, literally for that purpose. Um, and, and that's the hill you want to die on for educational purposes. Like, I, I, I dare any one of those people talking about we need these monuments for educational purposes to Google any of those monuments without any names connected and to, like, just share one name of, of any of who, of, of who any of those people are, what they contributed other than to try to continue to, you know, keep the institution of slavery in place. If you can name me one other significant contribution along with the name of one of those persons, um, we're still tearing it down, but maybe you'll feel like a little bit better, you know? <laughs> and next time you make the argument in the wake of it being pulled down, you might not look as stupid or sound as crazy. Uh, but <laughs> I mean, it's just ludicrous, bro. No, like, this, 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 is, ludicrous. this is key, Michael. And as you can see, I am picking up the mic my microphone at this point because this is this is so <laughs> this is so critical. I need the saints to really understand this. Um to them that feel as though these these erections are so critical to education, um, when was the last time you visited one? Like, I mean, the, uh, the the number of statues that we're defending that we've never physically seen, like not man one time. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, like I think that's the thing that is like mind boggling to me the most is that like. People are tripping over statues that they have never gone to see. They don't know where they are located. If they were in the state, they wouldn't even know how to find it. Okay. Like, and I think that's the thing that's just like, wow, you really want this thing to stay standing this bad and you've never seen it. Never, never taken a, a class field trip down there. Don't know what the plaque says. Don't know whose name it is. Don't know what contribution they made to history, but now nah, they really need to stay <laughs> like this is critical <laughs> i think that's the thing that's and i also think that it goes back to jordan's earlier point too from the standpoint of i think it's a lot of co-opting i think that mm. when black activists were having this conversation we were having this conversation around confederate flags confederate statues 
Now, all of a sudden, once again, here come white people. So what are you going to do? Get rid of the Washington Memorial down there in D.C.? What are you going to do? You're going to get rid of maybe get, get rid of uh, the Thomas Jefferson Memorial down there in D.C. I mean, what's next? There's just there's just there's no line. Where's the line? Where's the line? And it's just like, why are we having this conversation? Like, this is not. Like you took it there, first of all, nobody made a statement about tearing down the Washington Memorial. Like you took it there. And I think that it's a means of distracting from, like I said before, these very real Confederate statues, Confederate flags, Confederate memorials um, that you have never visited and seen in the flesh. I don't Just something that Jordan said earlier when he introduced it, it wasn't just that Trump was making um, executive orders. He was also tweeting out pictures of protesters yeah. that were mm. at these sites with their pictures, their photos, their names. We yeah. had we had a mayor, I think it was in St. Louis. St. Who, Louis, yeah. He was on her Facebook Live reading the names and addresses of some of these protesters. Yeah, and then she came out and apologized. And so this, this, is, this is part of the job. And when we're like, what hill are we willing to, to die on? And I remember listening to an interview by John Stewart. Uh, I love the guy, very intellectual. And he made a great point where he said, this slippery slope narrative that we like to hear from many white Americans, in a hypothetical scenario, let's, let's play that out, right? Let's say what they're describing as a worst case scenario of a removal of, let's say, Thomas Jefferson, right? Their worst case scenario is still a thousand times better than what people of color have gone through at the hand of those people in those monuments. And so when, when you think about this worst case scenario, right there. people's lives are not going to be lost you will still hear about them in your textbooks, in museums. And so when, when, when this idea of a slippery slope, all it does is find a way to place many white Americans and white conservatives back at the center of a victim in this situation. And it feels like a, you're, you're, you're co-opting the, the conversation because now it's no longer about what these monuments represent to the people that they farm. Now it's about this, this quote unquote slippery slope. And, and that's part of, of the frustration. It's like, I love Jordan, when you said, I think it was a Facebook post that you made where you're like, you have to really focus on where you want to put your energy in this fight. Are you truly anti-racist? And if so, what matters more, the removal of a statue or fighting for equity in our country, period. Like, I don't know. Man. That's right. I, so I really love the slippery slope argument because so bad. it makes it's like in their mind, all of these other figures they're naming, like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, like sure, no, right now people are not that's not the major pushman that takes on the statues. But when they bring that up as like what if this happens, it's like they're thinking in their heads that like these people were like the moral antithesis right. to the yeah. <laughs> Down, but like that's not actually that's not actually true like there's a lot of things that they all agreed on that mm -hmm. were all very bad there's a lot of things that they all did that were all very bad and i think it just points to even for moderates liberals 
there's like this idea that they have of American history, even if you're not Southern, even if you're not pro-South or pro-Confederate, any of that, you still have this picture of American history in your mind that's like, one side was wholly good and we were holding it down for y'all this entire time and the other side was not mm -hmm. and we can't get like we can't confuse that we can't add any nuance to that at all but like it's just not true like that's just not that's not how it played out at all yeah it, i think you're that's exactly the point that i think we like i like i love that point is what i'm trying to say like even earlier in the conversation, when we we're talking about white Jesus, Linda, um, Linda Nystrom, she was on here talking a little bit earlier about education and how we really have to like think through our biblical curriculum to decenter whiteness, right? And that same idea applies to our our, our education, our secular education, like history, like when history, when Black history, when Black voices are only centered in the month of February. That is the only time you even have the, the potential of learning that white people have been doing X amount of things that, that disproportionately disaffected black people, right? Like that's the only time you can learn that. And I know in the South, it was, when I was at Southern, I confronted a guy who walked around campus with a really big Confederate flag belt, like buckle thing on his, like, like it was crazy. It was huge. And like walking around campus with him, I'm like, do you know what that represents? And honestly, he genuinely did not know. I got the sense that he genuinely didn't know. And to his credit, I never saw him wear it again once I explained it to him. But it made me think that, that, they, that people are not being educated at all about what, you know, the Confederacy stood for. And I think a lot of people are being like introduced for the very first time. And so when they then also learn that like George Washington had slaves and Thomas Jefferson was like not a good person, they're like, oh my gosh, they're coming for everybody. Well, in a way, if you learned a more balanced history, you'd realize that we should be coming for everybody. Like, like we should really reckon with the distaste that is existent in all of American history and, and really talk about that from a really nuanced perspective. And that's the thing that I think can come out of this that's a positive, that, that people are now being introduced to the trashness of America from day one. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think even when we look at, I think kind of what Garrison's getting at here is that a complete education is more valuable than just random celebration in the streets of like such and such um, was a good general. Okay, but like, let's talk about the fullness of his life. Like, you know, for what side was he a good general? What was he strategizing for? And, and, and you know, what was he doing in his personal life? Oh, he had all of these slaves and all of the, you know, we don't talk about the fullness of people. And so we tend to get this one, you know, one off this, this imbalanced even perspective of people. And it's so harmful to our growth as a society. And in addition to that, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I just want to preserve um, the individuals who I came from, you know, my ancestors and all these people that, that fought, you know, and they died and all this stuff. And we're not arguing to obliterate the memory of them. 
we're arguing to put them where they belong, which is in a history museum, because we claim yeah. to be a post-racial America, and we claim to be all these things, which we're absolutely not. But I'm just saying, in the most idealistic mind of the people who are so against racial conversations, they think that we're so beyond this concept, yet they want to celebrate mm -hmm. the very depiction of that division and the, the, the depiction of that oppression. And so, you know, those those um, pictures like Larry Fell, um, Feldman said, you know, they belong somewhere. They belong in history books. They belong in museums. They have a place in our society. We're not trying to just totally obliterate the fact you cannot, we cannot even do um, fully communicate our narrative without that piece of history there. Um, but it has a place in a monument in modern day Alexandria, a, a monument in modern day um, Charlottesville. It is not the place for that. And and this is the last thing I'll say. I'm sorry to jump in <laughs> back to back here, but I, I do think it's really important to know that you know as we're talking a lot about anti-racism as a society today, like that's a big like talking about. Oh, I'm an anti-racist, or we need to be anti-racist. Your anti-racism is only as valuable as the history that it's built on. And I mm. see a lot of people like jumping. To it's like, like, oh, I got to be anti-racist. Like, oh, I'm going to be anti-racist. But you don't know history. Right. So you, uh, it's impossible for you to be anti-racist. So you end up doing more harm than good because your, your quote-unquote anti-racism is built on a colonized history. Yes. So yeah. you decolonize your history until you get to a place where you're understanding history from the perspective. No. Uh -oh. The Lord there, is not in the there we go. We love you. Uh, you are a great sermon, Garrison. I had to rebuke that spirit. I don't know where I was. In, I don't know where I was, but I'll just say this: until you decolonize your history, until your history is built on the narrative and from the account of the very people you claim to be an ally of, you are not an ally. You are actually more harm than good. You're hurtful to the cause. Yes. And we actually don't yep. need your help. But what we, what we what we need for you to do is to learn your history. I think it was Little John when I was in high school that came out with the song "Read a Book, Read a Book, Read a Blank and Blank and Book," and uh, <laughs> I think that's like a really important conversation because I hear white people ask me all the time, like, "What's the first thing I should do?" Like when I'm posting about allyship, and I'm like, "What books have you read about this conversation?" Because you're gonna try, you're just gonna sound stupid. But like to speak to some of these points about these Confederate monuments, I think it's really important to realize that these monuments were not put up to memorialize Confederate warriors or like they were not put up for that. They, they were not there to say like, wow, this was a great Confederate leader. They were put up to let black and brown people, specifically black people know that we lost the war, but y'all still are not free. And when you actually dig into this conversation, First of all, I'll read a little bit of the Cornerstone speech. I'm going to have to bleep out a little bit because I don't have the past to say some of these words that they used in the Confederate Cornerstone speech that they Amen. would read every time that not only that they would erect a Confederate monument, but they would name black high schools, predominantly black high schools, after Confederate leaders. They would, they would read this speech. And it said, it, its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the they use a different word, black person is not equal to the white man. 
that slavery subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our government is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. They would read this at the at the representation and unveiling of Confederate monuments, but but no, a lot of monuments were put up in from the 1880s to the 1910 to 1910 during the Jim Crow era. That's really important. So this was, I mean, the Confederate Confederacy ended in 1865. 15 years later, we start putting up these because the KKK had then been recently um, come to light. But the funny thing about this is, is that they would rededicate monuments during different times that black Americans in those communities were receiving some sort of, of equality. This happened, most Confederate monuments were rededicated during Brown versus Board of Education. That was a really big time of rededication during the civil rights era. And then a majority of Confederate statues were rededicated when Martin Luther Luther King Jr. was assassinated. They used these monuments as a glorification of a black man, a black leader, a black voice, a black activist, a black preacher, a black historian's death. They murdered him and then they glorified it through Confederate statues. And I'm not even talking about the Washington Monument because that dude was trash too. He had every opportunity to end slavery and he chose not to. This was a documented thing. They had the conversation, should we end it? And they said, nah, it's not that deep. We'll talk about other humanitarian issues. They decided to write the book and say, all white male Christian men, land-owning, gun-owning men are created equal. But let's not even talk about it. Yeah, if you don't want to remove Confederate monuments, we will tear down your statues of, of of the people that you see that are part of the union that are good. We will tear down. Jefferson, we will tear down. Uh, Washington, we will tear down. Abraham Lincoln, because even though he eliminated slavery, he was anti-black. Let's not confuse it. These things are important. If you can't see the normalcy of destroying the racism that is the Confederate monuments, you're really only fooling yourself. This is just a starting point of of white supremacy. This is just literally the beginning. And if you support Confederate monuments, you are in and of yourself anti-black. They are you are. It's not a history book. It's not a lesson. It is anti-blackness in and of itself. The end of it. That's it. And that's that's all I'm gonna say. Great point. Well done. Logan, my man. Eat, keep eating. Eat, eat, It's just important that that history. That history is so important to know what you're talking about about these things because. Literally, it was a campaign. The, the the Sons of the Confederacy and the Daughters of the Confederacy, they put together a campaign to rewrite the history to tell you that the Confederacy was about states' rights. It was not. It was about slavery because slavery was how they got their money when you own someone that worked for you for free. Like, it's so, so, so important to understand that. And Trump is a white supremacist. He is anti-black. Let's not confuse this. It is important. Voting for him is enabling anti-blackness, and it always will be. 2020, 2016, I do not care. Y'all shouldn't have had me come back, but. That's facts. Um, no, the, the amount I of, think, oh, oh, go I ahead, think, go I ahead, think go this ahead. is, I think what Logan said, and, and even what the Hayes, I'm just going with them because they, they are, <laughs> they're in a tag team spirit this evening. Um, what they said is so crucial because I think that <laughs> guys, I think that education is key, right? And so the fact of the matter is, is slavery gets a week in our textbooks 
And when we talk about it, we actually don't talk about these men and what exactly they were doing. We don't actually give real life and real platform to the fact that Thomas Jefferson went to a block and was physically examining bodies to determine, are these the most qualified bodies to work my grounds? He was actively groping black women to figure out, is this the body that I feel like raping? Right. Like, I, I, I think that we have this this tendency to sanitize American history. And unfortunately, because white Americans have always been the ones transcribing white American history, uh, they they're always remaining in control of the narrative. So we don't have to talk about the fact that Thomas Jefferson has several descendants as a result of Sally Hemings. You have to read his biography or read some upscale scholarship in order to know that that should just be basic level elementary history that Thomas Jefferson was raping black women on his plantation. Like there's just some stuff that unfortunately, because we have left it in some kind of a history vault, the, the majority of American masses just do not see these people through the appropriate lens. And so there has to be a true re-educating of our country's history. I read an article that was really kind of talking about how this, this author of uh, D'Angelo of White Fragility has really been getting a lot of publicity lately because of her book. And it's on the you know New York Times bestseller. And if you wanna know about how to be anti-racist, you gotta read Ibram Kendi and you gotta read White Fragility, D'Angelo. But this author made such a really great point in that black people for the last 300 years have been writing about white fragility. Like we've been, there are pantheons of black literary art authors who have been articulating what it means to be black in America, who have defined whiteness, who have articulated how whiteness moves and operates in society. Like you can, you do not get the history of whiteness without black female scholar, Nell Irvine Painter. Like there are black women and black scholars who have been doing this work for years. And the fact that now in 2020, everybody wants to be woke. Everybody wants to be an ally. Everybody wants to figure out what to do. And the first book that they they want to read is a book by a white person about white racism. It's like, no, there's entire anthologies written by black thinkers that you have completely overlooked because once again, you do not want to deal with the raw nitty gritty history of white supremacist violence in this country. You do not want to read that stuff in Baldwin's work. You're not ready. And so you mm. find these contemporary white scholars that write it to you in a way that makes you feel comfortable and that's the book that you want to buy and i think that if you're really i think logan said it the hayes said it if you really want to be anti-racist in this moment right now you need to go through a very serious re-education where you decolonize your history you take whiteness out of the center of it and you put native americans at the center of it and then figure out mm. what is american history when a native american body is in the middle what is american history when a black body is in the middle. And then I feel like you better position yourself for these conversations because as long as whiteness remains at the center of these conversations, you will always be offended whenever we want to talk about taking down a picture of white Jesus or taking down a statue of a, a slave owner. Like we have so romanticized slavery in this country that, that the mere fact that that is not 
Uh, that, I, that I even have to say that is, is extremely problematic. The mere fact mm. that we have to have conversations about uh, why we still haven't changed the name of the Redskins football team is mind boggling. Like some stuff just does not, it should not require a conversation. But the fact of the matter is, is that our history remains at the center of whiteness. And until whiteness is no longer the center of our nation's narrative, we will not have any kind of real growth whatsoever. Not possible. Mm. The story has to be completely rewritten. And, and, and I think that their unwillingness to remove these statues, to remove these pictures, things of this nature is evidence of their unwillingness to change the narrative. And that is why white supremacy will perpetuate. That is why we're not mm -hmm. gonna go anywhere. I don't care how many posts you make. I don't care how many articles and books you read. If you do not wanna change the story, then you do not want to do the work of anti-racism. Mercy. Mm. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yep. Phenomenal. And, oh my goodness. I mean, uh, <laughs> Claudia, I mean, how much are they paying you? How much are we paying you? I mean, there, there needs to be, there needs to be honorarium on the way or something. Mike, if you want to work that out, feel free. But you're the, you're the host, bro. What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah, <laughs> you brought it up. She was here for free. I, I know <laughs> Esther wanted to make a. I know Esther wanted to make a comment, but before that, I just want to again shout out people that have been rocking with us for this episode. We love the engagement uh -huh. in the comments. Bree Vallet, uh, Mike Miller, Felicia Alexander, Javon Hines, um, Jeremy Mendehall. We are loving what you guys are saying again. They they honestly just feel like our um, one of our adoptive parents on the show, uh, Larry and his wife Sandy, always holding it down for us. We love you guys. So again, thank you so much, um, everyone, for tuning in, and uh, thank you for these comments. I love what you guys have been saying. Esther, please take it away for us. Yeah. So I just really want to touch on education. And I know like it's, it's been said a little bit here and there that like the true tragedy that we're seeing right now is people learning so late, like everybody's learning everything so late and now they're having to like, they're having to unlearn and that's a lot of work. Um, and I work in a school, I work in, I work in a black school and we have conversations all the time around like the importance of culturally relevant pedagogy. And there are all of these nonprofit educational organizations that dedicate themselves to finding people, training them with culturally relevant pedagogy, sending them into black schools to help like unpack all of this. It's still very, very subpar, but there is a lot of effort going into that. And one of the things that has bothered me about this so much is that the assumption is that the problem is how black children are being educated, but that's not true. That is part of the problem. Our, the education that black children are getting all across the country is extremely subpar and needs to be fixed. But this idea that culturally relevant teaching ha is just for black kids is extremely mm. false. And there, there needs to be, there needs to be TFAs and urban, what urban teachers, all that stuff for infiltrating white schools. Yeah. They have to do it because what's happening right now is there's all this effort going into creating black students that are able to survive. That's really what it is. Here's tools for you to survive and navigate these racist systems that exist because the, we haven't managed to take them down yet, but there's nothing happening on the other side to prevent that from being our black students reality. Like there's just like mm -hmm. a gaping 
gaping hole in our efforts. And everybody talks about suburban education, like, you know, they're doing so well over there. And yeah, like they have resources and they have all of that stuff, but kids are being indoctrinated to have have all of these ideas right. about America. And so they grow up and now they can't detach their identity from it because they've been, mm. it's been fueling everything for the entire 13 years that they were in school. Mm. And somebody, mm. somebody do it. Like somebody please make that organization that's dedicated to doing that work. Cause it's just, it's, it's frustrating. I think for a lot of educators knowing like, I'm pouring my heart out into these black students every day and I'm really trying, I'm really trying, but knowing like all the time, like all I'm doing is giving you tools to survive in the existing system and hoping that you can attempt to overthrow it. But also knowing like you can't do that by yourself. Somebody has to be getting other people, white people and white children in on that fight earlier on because you can't, you can't count on this unlearning in college and meeting new people and yeah. broadening your horizons. It's not enough. That's a great that, idea. That, that point to kind of what Simone was mentioning earlier and possibly of what, you know, Logan, you know, he's he's always battling these people on social media. <laughs> there, there seems to be like these two completely different realities of America. And then when you try to enter into these conversations, you find yourself at this moment where you realize this person has a large gaping hole of information on this topic that they don't even realize. And so you find that this is no longer uh, a moment where you can try to express truth. Now it becomes a moment where like, now I have to like break this down into bite size for you so that you can try to make an attempt in understanding. But as you've kind of seen, I know that like Esther and I have talked about it, these moments where you're trying to express the pain behind some of these these monuments or this picture of white Jesus, there, many of these white Americans are not entering in this conversation for the sake of being uh, humble or for the sake of trying to convert. This is nothing more than just like a very vague debate to them where they feel I'm gonna bring my opinion, they're gonna bring their opinion and then we're good, right? Without realizing that their opinion is harmful, right? Like their opinion is rooted in a very white supremacist, racist belief that has been taught to them since they were a child and they don't even realize it, which is why education is so crucial in, in rectifying that harm from a very young age. I realized that uh, so many of the systemic racial writings I was not introduced to until I was a sophomore in college. And I remember, and I know, you know, what, what Robert D'Angelo said, for many white Americans, you can go past college and never have to wrestle with race. You can take specific classes, you can get a specific job, you can move into a specific neighborhood, never having to wrestle with the accurate depiction of history. To that, to that point, you know, Adrian, I, I think you're making such an important point. I'll, I'll say this, you know, as you all have as well, we've been engaging in these conversations with people who are just kind of encountering, like you said, Adrian, this stuff for the very first time. And one thing I've noticed is that as long as you're listening to the voices that are actively trying to decredit, discredit black voices and black, you know, centered histories, um, you're never going to get this. As long as you're listening to the Dave Rubens and the Thomas Sowells and the Ben Shapiro's of this world, 
they are actively working yeah. to discredit a, yeah. a, a centered, a, a holistic version of history. One thing that I've even encountered is like people will send me these articles of, of others who are like, you know, like, oh, this was an inaccuracy and this thing wasn't right. Or they said this and it wasn't true in this way or that way. And the thing that I'm always like trying to challenge people to think about is how many inaccuracies exist in our normative curriculum? Yeah. How many factual inaccuracies yeah. have we learned through the years? I know I've learned factual inaccuracies, even about Black Wall Street, I learned factual inaccuracies. I've learned factual inaccuracies about Atlanta and, and different history, different things that happened down there that later on I realized, wait, that wasn't true. And yet no one ever took the time to write lengthy and detailed articles to try to discredit that history. And, and it goes back to, again, the centering of whiteness in our educational spaces and in the way that we do things exactly, Mike, like Candace Owens, it goes back to centering whiteness and the work and the efforts that's, yeah. that's being put in uh, to uphold anti-blackness particularly. I'm going to toss it out there and say that we need systemic change when it comes to the way that we approach education. There are standards that are set when you are in a math class, you are expected to learn to add, you're expected to learn to multiply, you're expected to learn to divide, you're expected to learn what square roots are, you're expected to learn all these things. But when it comes to our history in America, we have not prioritized a true and complete curriculum in our history classes. And that calls for systemic change all over our nation. That comes for core curriculums to be mm. testing over accurate history. I mean, we're not act we're not asking for it just to be black history. We are act we're asking for an accurate yeah. full depiction of our country's history. And we're asking for our students to have access to that, for our people to have access to that. We're under the assumption that we all go to school at some point. We're asking for that to become mainstream, for that to become a priority um, mm -hmm. all across our nation, because there's no way, I mean, to your point, you know, we can't just be educating our black children. You know, really the education, it needs to be, in white children and, and in other, I mean, we need to be talking about these things all across the board and receiving yeah. the same yeah. amount of good information. And we need to be able to have some, I mean, at least try in some of our public schools, private schools and other educational facilities. Yep, saying we need to educate black children is anti-black. Like we have to realize that we can't probably like, pretend like we're prioritizing. White people telling us to educate black children is because white people think black children are inferior. Like these things are very clear, um, very obvious. And like, yeah, it's it, that's just a whole, a whole conversation. You know, I, I think um, it was interesting. I, I, not to, to, but to your point, Claudia, I was in a live stream where Robin D'Angelo was speaking and they asked her about education and her voice in this. And so, um, she said, if you're a, an educator and you're not willing to remove any form of racial bias you see in your classroom, you need to quit your job. Like she was yeah. very clear on that. She mm. said, you should not be an educator if you're not dedicating your time and the majority of your curriculums to educating against racism. Because wow. that's the thing is we have to be honest as a, when we talk education, if racism 
if white supremacy is continually our original sin, it is also our biggest problem. It is the one thing that when we fight this, we fight the other problems. Like that's what King pushed so hard in his writings. Like fighting for the least of these is going to fight for everyone. And your point to Native Americans, we don't even discuss them because we never even accepted them into our society. Like we never even made them anything in our society until, you know, more recently. But yeah. And, the, and the we idea, did. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying that the idea, any job, I don't care where you are, where you see racial bias, you should be willing to step away from it and say, you know, cause I'm gonna be honest with you. The reason I turned down pastoring gigs when I left seminary is because I had a conversation when that senior pastor would call me and say, we're a diverse congregation. And I'd say, what does that look like? What are you diverse mm -hmm. of? What is glorifying diversity about you? Why are you, where are you highlighting cultures? And if they didn't have an answer, they didn't get another call from me. I didn't even care. I didn't want their money within their mm -hmm. congregation. And no, I know I could go there and possibly do positive change, but I was like, it's going to take me years just to change this pastor's mind. I'm not going to have this conversation. And don't even get me started on not wanting a paycheck from a state conference. So, um, yeah, like that, you're, you've got to be willing to say my life is better off without this money than it is yeah. to continue to be paid by someone that hates black and brown people. No, that's so good, Logan. I mean, the thing that I was going to, you know, you said so much that that kind of just came to my or brought things to my mind. Uh, and one thing when you said about the Native Americans is that I think we've actually bought into the lie that they were effectively exterminated. And so like, we actually believe that they're gone. And so that's why they're never part of the conversation. They're never brought to the table. They're never invited anywhere because we don't actually think they're here anymore. Um, and so there has to be way more intentionality to kind of like break that barrier of the, of the reservation and, and, and going in and, and building those connections again. But then even beyond that, um, actively saying, there are Native Americans that are not on the on the reservation that are out and about in our communities. And how can we invite them into these conversations on on race and colonialism? Um, because yeah. they their presence is essential to the rewriting of a positive anti-racist history like in this country. That's good. That's good. Uh, well, first of all, um, amazing conversation. Claudia, thank you once again for coming. Honestly, it I was feel a edified. pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? That was mine. That was surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Claudia, that fly that was ever fly around your room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What'd you say? Did you did you kill that fly? Whatever it was you were trying to. No, it is here. I'm telling you. I don't know. Listen, <laughs> listen. Okay. It'll get. Don't worry. It'll get found and it'll get killed before I go to bed tonight. You can you can trust that. I don't I don't sleep when I know that there are presents, um, you know, in in my house. <laughs> so guys, before we close, we're gonna do a lightning quick, super quick. PMI and PMI, of course, is short for piqued my interest. That can be a book, TV show, movie, um, or even article that you read, Claudia Hint Hint, or wrote that you would love to share with the viewers. And that has really piqued your interest this week. Claudia, you're our esteemed guest. Can you start for us? 
Am I supposed to be? Am I supposed to peek my own article? Feel free. <laughs> or am I supposed to? I no, no. This is a serious question. No. Okay. Where is? This is what I'm going to actually do. I don't want to do the self promotion thing. So definitely read the article. Clearly, that's essential. Here it is. I have a hundred thousand books in my room. Clearly, I don't know where they are. You need this in your life. Rescuing the cowboys, rescuing the gospel from the cowboys, a Native American expression mm. of the Jesus way. Wow, wow, wow. So once you finish I, reading I my article, Why White Jesus Has to Go, then you should go to Amazon and purchase Rescuing the wow. Gospel from the Cowboys and just I'm let that- be a better bookstore. <laughs> Listen, okay, uh, and just go ahead and um, this this book uh, piqued my interest uh, because literally it is a book about um, the Christian experience, um, the Christian expression of religion through Native Americans. It's like literally a Native American theologian is writing it. Um, and not only is he kind of including just some powerful language in there that just completely is doing and undoing in me, um, but it is also just presenting why Christianity is such a difficult religion to evangelize to Native Americans because of that history. Um, but then also undoing some history by saying, hey, there were Christian ideas or monotheistic ideas about God that the Native Americans already had and were following prior to the coming of European colonists. And so they had actually received in vision the idea of Christ and the cross. And they had received this knowing that God said, I'm sending you someone who is going to give you further information on that. And so it's like the Europeans came and definitely gave them further information on this Christ and this cross. But in addition to that also came national genocide. Um, and so it's like, how do you reconcile knowing that this monotheistic creator, they call God creator, um, that spoke to you and told you, this is what I'm trying to reveal to you. And, 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 expressed to you, but then simultaneously just so much pain and suffering came in conjunction with that delivery. Um, and so just such powerful stuff, man. They, he, he, when he writes, I, I love language. One of the things he says is he calls the Holy Spirit, great spirit. I'm telling you, language is everything. It's like when you hear other people talking about God in their language, it it fills you, it restores you, it heals you, it moves you in a completely different way. Um, and I think that we're so used to hearing European language around God um, that I'm telling you, when you hear this Native American talk and explain and theologize about the same God, it's gonna do something really powerful for you. So why Jesus has to go and then rescuing the gospel from the Cowboys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Cannot say it enough. Uh, Garrison, the birthday boy, could you go next for us, please? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, the thing that piqued my interest probably for the last two weeks, I haven't been on, uh, but I've just been like really like powerfully moved by the book Chokehold by Paul Butler. Uh, it's just been like in, it's been mulling over it. 
Um, he, you know, obviously we know Eric Garner and George Floyd in a way, and, and a few other, you know, notable prominent black men have been killed um, by the use of chokehold. And, and Paul Butler, who is a, a law professor at Georgetown University, uses that to describe the experience of Americans. He, he talks about how a chokehold is a process of coercing submission that he mm. describes as self-reinforcing. Uh, so in other words, a, cho a chokehold justifies additional pressure on the body. Um, into compliance. Oh, oh. We you said you you yeah. said you said it applies extra pressure to the body, and then the enemy tried to to steal your point. Keep going. We tried to, we tried to choke my point out, but the, the idea is that the additional pressure placed on the body um, is justified uh, precisely because the body will not come under compliance of the chokehold. I'm being choked, and it's taking my life away, so I'm going to naturally resist. But that resistance justifies and self-reinforces the use of the chokehold. He says that that is the experience of being Black in America, that our very resistance seems to justify the use of force that is constantly meeting us, and yet the use of force is exactly what we are resisting. And it's a beautiful exposition, um, but, but that kind of pairs with this idea of abolishing and defunding the police, abolishing prison, and it's a really, really great, great book. Highly recommend Chokehold um, by Paul Butler. Thank you so much. Esther, could you share for us next, please, on what piqued your interest? Yeah. Um, so my, my interest, I actually listened to this podcast a few weeks ago, but this conversation brought it back to mind. Um, you know, every, I don't know, everybody hopefully knows the podcast, This American Life from NPR. Um, but they have a really good episode that they did on Afrofuturism. Mm. Yeah. It's really good. I'm, I'll, I don't know. I'm going to put the link in this chat and then somebody put it in the, in the actual comment section. Yeah. But um, it just, it's talking about how like the act of just imagining black people existing in the future and like the resilience and all of that, that that requires is like an act of resistance in and of itself. And you know, there's four different segments that are all very, very good. And it's way less depressed. It's a way less depressing way to engage in this conversation. So that's a really good podcast that you should check out. Oh. Thank you so much. Uh, and we'll be sure to put that podcast in the comment section as well as all the other things that we're sharing. Simone, could you share for us next, please? Yes, I'm happy to. So um, some of you may know that uh, Zora Neale Hurston just, um, there's a new publication of eight of her lost um, Harlem stories. And they just came out. It's called Hitting a Straight Lick with a Crooked Stick. So I am um, in the process of reading that. She is phenomenal. As you all know, if you don't know, please find out. Um, she is amazing, an amazing writer, an amazing thinker. Um, and she just contributed so much to thought and how we experience um, Black literature and um, Black art even. So um, highly encourage checking that out. Thank you, thank you. Um, Logan, could you share next for us, please? 
Sure. I'm actually going to stay on topic of Claudia because she brought it up and I've kind of um, used it as a PMI before, which is white fragility. Um, and I want to speak to the reality. I, I, I've read um, a lot um, on racism. Like I've tried to stay. Um, and so when this all came out, I was like, I'm going to read another book. And so I just picked white fragility because I had read it before. And so when I did that, I started a, a, like an anti-racism book club. And so it's what's interesting about this is a lot of white people were really interested in reading it. We had our first meeting last week. And, you know, if any of them listen to this, don't take any offense. But I, I agree. Like uh, the, the conversations that Robin has are great. And I think they're bridge building. And I think it's a beneficial read. But I don't think it is what people are giving it its credit to be. Um, I think as a white woman, she misses points that I don't see being missed in other places, such as um, Ibram Kendi's writing and, you know, like some other books that I've written. And um, honestly, I'll just say, if you're reading White Fragility and if you have read it, this should be your very first book. Like of the hundred books, I guess if you if you started it, make sure you continue it because it's not giving you the, the essential enough information. And honestly, um, I've been listening to it on audiobook because I've kind of found it like a little bit like uh, not as good as I was hoping it would be. Um, and so like she's really bright and I think she has a lot of good things to say and she understands talking to white people. But I do think, yeah, like uh, Garrison will always speak to highlighting black, especially black women voices is really important. Um, and, and, you know, black male voices because echoing that experience is super, super important. Um, not to discredit anyone reading that book. I think your allyship is, you know, wanted, but also just be willing to go a lot further. Uh, hi, Dan. Um, anyway, yeah, that's my PMI. <laughs> Yo, shout out to Dan. <laughs> Mike, could you share with us your PMI, please? <laughs> yeah, if I can stop laughing. Um, okay. So, yeah, a, a couple of real quick things. So, first of all, I want to share in the comments. Um, it was a article that my wife Tassiana dropped on Juneteenth on worship and justice over at NAD Ministerial. Talks a little bit about uh, white Jesus and some other things around the colonization of worship. And so uh, I encourage everybody to check that out. I'll drop the link in the comments. Um, my dad, because I'm his son, told me to mention that he's going to be preaching on this topic this Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, drop the link. So, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't have the link live yet because they don't. His the people they, that they are kind of yeah. don't plan well, but um, they don't do yeah. that. No, nah, they <laughs> don't do that. But um, shout out, out to the birthday homie. Yeah, facts. Right, That's a fact. fact. So shout out to him, sixty-two, getting old, bro. But hey, um, he's my age. <laughs> yeah, low key. Um, so yeah, look out for that. And one last thing, I wanted to share. Uh, this book, along the lines of what Claudia was talking about, book by Mark Charles and Soon Chan Ra called Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. It's a really powerful book. Um, that Doctrine of Discovery is a really uh, scary and sobering concept. Boom. There it is. It's That book is wild, um, but I, I encourage you all to read that as well because it will blow your mind. Uh, and there are definitely some unsettling truths in there. So, yeah, those are my PMIs. Almost, I almost got boomered. Almost got boomered. I bet. I bet. 
<laughs> Very I good. Thank you for sharing. You ever properly. Thank you for sharing your PMIs. Uh, my quick PMI is the podcast episode. Wait, did Adrian from- go? Oh, Adrian, Adrian, Adrian. Adrian, please share with us. Please forgive me, cousin. I do not. Um, so I had one, but one thing that really, it brought me back to something else. Um, Esther and I watched a couple of weeks ago, a Patriot Act episode by Hassan Minhaj, um, particularly the one in response to uh, George Floyd. Um, where he he does a very great job of breaking down two things. The first thing is that he asks us to zoom out of the picture and there is an Asian police officer, which he opened up the conversation to kind of discuss that um, uh, racism and and the act of complacency by standing idly by um, is just as problematic as the one taking the life. Um, And then the second thing that he talks about is just how we need other races, particularly the Asian uh, community that tend to be a bit more um, uh, reserved in that conversation to be a bit more active. Um, because he, the way he phrased it, I thought was just very profound where he asked us to just kind of, uh, how he phrased it as follow the chess moves. And he talks about how the civil rights movement that was um, pushed by black Americans opened the door for other minority groups to follow suit afterwards. And there's just a level of failure to acknowledge how crucial that was um, that Black people played in opening the door for so many other people to gain civil rights. And I just thought that one was profound. Overall, his content is always good. Uh, Very good, um, very good show on Netflix and YouTube. Very good. Thank you. I, I do want to second that. Uh, show was amazing. The episode was amazing as well. So my PMI is an episode from the show 1A. It is hosted by Jen White. First of all, she is a black woman. She's a journalist. She's amazing, intelligent, charming. And the episode that she covered um, talked about the canceling of the TV show Cops, which is kind of a big deal because I'm a huge culture TV fan. And Cops is like a paragon of reality TV. But it was canceled because of these recent protests. And then they have the sh- former showrunner of, 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 the, of The Shield. And, you know, people that were able to also speak on this idea of copaganda, which started back in Dragnet, where uh, PDs, Los Angeles PD, would link with TV show creators to create a positive image of policing. So it's super interesting. I'm going to drop it in the comments. Um, and that is 1A. And you can find that on Apple Podcasts. So that's it. That is Affirmative Interaction. Folks, what a show. Well, I, thought, um, I, thought we had, I thought we had another hour to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me close the show in peace. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, we're so glad that every one of you could make it. Um, and again, we're so glad to Claudia for taking the time out to join us. The things that you've given us have been incredibly valuable. Of incredibly you, valuable. We can't wait to have you back. And again, thank you to all of you for allowing us to interact with you and to affirming our existence, our thoughts, and our ideas This is Affirmative Interaction. I'm your host, Jordan Smart. We'll see you next week.
Wear a mask. Wear a mask. Take the census. Take the census. And vote. 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 Not vote, vote for who? Vote for who? Vote for who? <laughs> Biden.